0: Contra is friction. Contra is.
1: Contra is nuanced. Contra Contra is is transgressive.
0: Good trouble. Contra Contra is is
1: collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive.
0: Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamray. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. In Episode 5, Vanderbilt graduate students and Critical Design Lab members Maggie Mang and Rebecca Rahimi speak to Robert McRuer about his book, Crip Times, Disability, Globalization, and Resistance, published by NYU Press in 2018. This episode is about crip theory and the material world, including ways that disability activists are critiquing processes of austerity and gentrification through art and design, this work really marks a shift within the field of disability studies toward thinking about radical disability theory and activism as practices of reclamation and reinvention, and builds on earlier work in crypt theory by Carrie Sandal, Allison Kafer, and Robert himself. Here we're interested in how ideas in crypt theory can also influence material production, such as design. So here are Maggie, Rebecca, and Robert.
1: Hi, we are here today with Professor Robert McGruder of George Washington University to talk about his newest book, Crip Times, Disability, Globalization, and Resistance, which was published recently through NYU Press. My name is Maggie Ming.
2: I'm Rebecca Rahimi.
1: And we are first year graduate students at Vanderbilt Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. We are actually here today to record this interview for CONTRA, which is a podcast put out by the Critical Design Lab, which takes the methods from critical and interrogative design to look at the often messy intersections between technology, embodiment, the built environment, and disability. So
2: we'll be speaking a bit about your research and your newest book. And you've really contributed to the world of crip theory and queer crip theory. Do you mind describing that for our listeners who might not be familiar with that field? And additionally, you use concepts like crip times and austerity politics in your book. Do you mind explaining these concepts for our listeners?
3: Crip theory is a big project that we are currently in the process of Inventing, I would say what it can potentially mean, but like queer, the word crip is a reclaimed and reinvented term that has been circulating for decades, really, in disability culture and disability activism uh, and has come to be a sort of edgy, in-your-face, defiant, out-and-proud word. I think like queer, it has the sort of advantage of being, uh, as I say in the book, fabulously identitarian and fabulously anti-identitarian at the same moment, by which I mean that crip has been a term that many radical disability activists have used to describe their own identities, but crip also tends to be an analytic and a term that's useful for thinking about bodies, minds, and behaviors that don't fit neatly into our available languages for thinking about impairment, disability, illness, and the body. So, crip theory uh, as a project, I think, like uh, feminism as a project, in that feminism is capable of sort of thinking about the ways in which anything that seems not on the surface to be deeply about gender is actually saturated with issues about gender. I think crip theory simultaneously brings to the fore the ways in which disability, even if it's invisibilized in a given topic or issue or situation is actually quite central to how we might conceptualize and rethink and remake the topic at hand. So I think I've just named feminism and have previously named queer theory. Crypt theory is sort of deeply in conversation with those radical projects as well. Austerity politics tends to be a global consensus at this point that is very sedimented, even if in specific locations austerity is sometimes declared to be at an end. So for example, in this moment, the British government is now saying, oh, austerity is done, a project that they officially embarked on in 2010. But the logic of austerity still animates that location and most locations around the globe specifically refers to a program of cutting vital public services privatizing those same services imposing fees for healthcare education transportation didn't exist before raising the retirement age all in the interests of addressing a supposed crisis uh, usually a, a budget crisis sometimes uh, well, a deficit crisis, sometimes bailing out the banks, um, but austerity is the sort of uh, universal solution—in scare quotes—to uh, those supposed crises. Um, I argue in the book that that actually is uh, a failed policy. That masks the ways in which austerity has actually facilitated a massive redistribution of wealth upwards. Um, the other term that you wanted me to unpack was. Ah, crypt time. So I use the concept of crip times. I think the concept of crypt time circulates in disability communities to talk about the ways in which disability enables us to experience and rethink and relive temporality otherwise. So crip time sometimes refers to a slowing down, a questioning of uh, modalities of speed and efficiency and the compulsion to go faster and faster and faster. Uh, time refers to thinking about the ways in which the body actually uh, has its own ideas about how long something might take or what needs it has and so forth and so on crypt times as a concept i use in the book to talk about the moment that we're living in where i argue disability is a sort of central but under theorized element of on the one hand sort of political economy in general on the other hand a global politics of austerity so i argue that crypt times is a way of sort of calling attention to disability centrality to our moment but i also use the term if that is arguably sort of negative, I also use the term to describe the generativity of crip activism and art. So the centrality of disability to a global austerity politics has radicalized many artists and activists in generative ways that has led to the production of new forms of uh, activism, different modalities of art, and these are forms of art and activism that cross borders with with ease. And so Crip Times also has that positive generative, cripistemological, we might say, if we think of cripistemology as a term for thinking about ways of knowing with and through and across disability. So Crip Times speaks to that generative sight and moment.
1: Along those lines, you're also one of the few scholars who look at disability alongside questions of the political economy. Um, Why do you also have to take into consideration neoliberalism when talking about things like access? Mm
3: -hmm. Well, I think whenever we're talking about neoliberalism uh, of the past few decades, we really have to think about the ways in which neoliberalism hijacks identity so In some ways, LGBT identity is the prime example uh, where you have um, a really radical movement that was reshaping our notions of being in common and sociality and sexuality and desire in the 70s and 80s. And you get neoliberal capital in the 80s and 90s starting to get that and domesticate it and tame it and market to it and put forward representatives while sort of forgetting or invisibilizing the more radical demands of the movement. So I think you have to watch that with any sort of identity category that's caught up in neoliberalism, and all identity categories are. So disability needs to be thought of in in that regard in relation to to neoliberalism. Certain strand I mean, there's many ways of narrating the history of the disability movement or disability movements and disability studies, Uh, and I think there's amazing work being done by emerging scholars like Leslie Fry, whose dissertation was on sort of rethinking the ways that we tell the story of the disability rights movement as a particular story that's largely very white and about independence and uh, self-sufficiency and work. And she's doing really this amazing sort of recovery work, narrating the story differently through... Um, sort of African American histories uh, and other ways of thinking about origins of the movement. So the first thing I would want to say about political economy is like it's kind of been there from the beginning and some origin stories of the disability movement would be explicitly Marxist. Um, Many of the models that emerged in the UK in the 70s and 80s were sort of openly Marxist, but also in Scandinavia as well. Um, You had a lot of radical conversations going on in in Denmark and Sweden about what a more accessible world might look like and how that accessible world might be brought into being by sort of changing structures of oppression. So um, there's a book that I'm kind of citing in the background here that's called Loneliness and its Opposite uh, about Scandinavia that gets at those histories. So the first thing I would say is that Thinking about political economy has a long history in, in disability justice movements and in disability studies. I do think though that over the past decade and a half there has been a sort of geopolitical turn that's marked by, for instance, a series of special issues of the Journal of Literary and Cultural Disability Studies that focus on post-colonial theory, on transnational theory, And there is a way in which Nirmala Aravellis's book, uh, Disability and Difference in Global Context, I think is the title. Um, I may have uh, mistaken that slightly, but her book really sort of called us to attention on the question of needing to think globally. Not that it wasn't going on in other locations before that, but I think that book does mark a milestone that is followed by a range of books that are very different but can still be seen as a kind of cluster of books focusing on political economy and disability. So I'm thinking of David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder's book, The Biopolitics of Disability. Times also certainly fits in there. I, I would also say that in a different way, Jasbir Puar's recent book um, on, called The Right to Mame that's on debility and disability also is just part of that larger conversation that's happening right now in in and across the field about geopolitics and political economy.
2: Thank you. So in your most recent book, Crip Times, you speak about the ways in which you approach notions of disability, social justice, and global politics and the economy through the lens of art. Um, And we were wondering what led you to look at global policies and acts of resistance through the lenses of art, performance, and design. And is that a connection that is readily or inherently obvious, or was there a moment or event that sparked this particular connection? What about art allows for these spaces of generative thought and imagined possibilities?
3: There are two artists that are central to the second half of the book, and one of them, uh, Liz Crow, was just at my university last week talking about her 2015 performance piece called Figures. Just briefly, she did a performance piece where for 11 days uh, over the course of March and April of 2015, she sculpted 650 human-like figures out of raw river mud, and each one was meant to represent someone sort of living at the sharp end of austerity and sometimes dying. And as she sculpted each piece, uh, social media broadcast uh, a story that would go with each figure. The performance had many aspects, including a, a tour eventually. They were put on display and toured and eventually burned in a bonfire while well, these 650 stories were read aloud she then scattered the ashes into the ocean so it's interesting that crow captured something in her talk last week that really i think captures something about my own thinking about art she uh, stresses repeatedly i haven't given up on the other kind of activism when in this dangerous moment it's urgent that we have direct action and marches and protests but she also wants to sort of find a space for valuing uh, certain kinds of activist uh, slash artistic practices that are more about getting us to sort of reflect and think differently and to get back to crypt time, slow down. Uh, And so uh, while affirming that need that's obvious for collective resistance in this dangerous moment, I kind of really want to affirm in the book the ways in which artistic practices also generate a kind of crypt time that allow us to think otherwise and slow down and imagine other worlds. Yeah, I also try to theoretically tie that idea into queer of color critique specifically the work of Derek Scott, who wrote a book called Extravagant Abjection, and he similarly puts forward a bifurcated affirmation of the need for collective resistance, which is obvious, but then also asks what happens when we linger uh, in literary ways, in artistic ways, in cultural ways, linger over woundedness and abjection, uh, and, and for Scott in his book on African-American literature on blackness. So... Uh, I'm very influenced by that sort of line of thought in both crip and queer of color critique.
1: It's actually a perfect segue into the second question. So you said in your work that you actually highlight the works of Liz Crow and Livia Brodwanski. And so we're just curious of how, why such an affinity for these two artists? Why what? Of these two works and of their mediums and the messages and intent that they're working with and really Strikes you and fits into the larger work that you're you're trying to do in your book
3: Um, There's several reasons Um, certainly I Profoundly appreciate the deep feminist commitments that drive both artists work uh, in very different locations in the world and I also was sort of looking for an, uh, a sort of parallel and maybe inversion it was clear to me when I met Liz Crow in 2014 that I wanted to do something with her art and with the performance which was still to happen at the time that I met her the book had coalesced around austerity politics in the UK this piece was directly on that she was, deeply located in crip culture and disability activism, and so I wanted to focus on her work while really appreciating the ways in which that location in disability culture nonetheless spun out into this sort of textured thinking about class and poverty and inequality, which is massive in the UK uh, and increasing everywhere, but the income inequality in the UK is, is staggering. Rodwanski is sort of the inversion of that, where she is a sort of leftist feminist thinker and artist whose work is not specifically about disability, but who thinks deeply about issues of class as she attends to both processes of displacement, mainly in Mexico, but in other locations as well, but also to the ways in which poor communities Mobilize collectively to address displacement and economic injustice. What struck me about her work once I started working with it very closely was how disability was just sort of right beneath the surface. So in some ways she was the inversion uh, of Crow, but a perfect pairing for her. So the reason I ended up working with uh, an artist working in Mexico, she's a Brazilian photographer working in Mexico, I was... Attentive to the ways following the London 2012 Games, the the British government was trumpeting itself as the model for access around the globe and traveling the globe with its selling, basically its vision of disability access. And so I was struck by the ways in which a certain kind of photo op and event was happening, uh, redesigning Mexico City space outside the British Embassy and other locations uh, at the same time moment that sort of heightened processes of gentrification were displacing other populations and Rodwansky's photos grapple with that. So the chapter on her photography has sort of Britain's selling of its access functioning as a smokescreen in two ways. both covering over what was happening back at home to the increasingly uh, precarious situation of disabled people, and also covering over in the very space where they were offering access as this sort of export, covering over the fact that accelerated processes of gentrification were displacing people in Mexico as well.
2: Now, this kind of moves on to a bit of a broader question, but touches upon things that you've discussed in previous talks, such as The one image that you brought up at the London Paralympic Games with the two uh, tennis players being covered by the mayor of London and the prime minister and one of Rodwanski's images of the yellow couch with the Mm -hmm. blanket on it and and, uh, Crows figures, these types of really striking and symbolic images. And we were wondering how certain images more than others come to symbolize or represent the whole of a movement. For instance, you bring in the example of the student protests in Chile and how the photo that came to represent the movement was of a young, presumably able-bodied woman, as opposed to the image of the march with individuals on the hunger strike. What might these symbols have to offer when thinking about concepts of embodiment, dissemination, affect, and... Why do you feel that we prioritize certain images over others?
3: I mean, I think the forces that lead certain images to become representative and that marginalize or invisibilize others are multiple. I think that one would be simply sort of compulsory able-bodiedness, which generates the need for images of health, youth, vigor, able-bodiedness and makes an image like Camila Vallejo's that you're referencing with the initial 2011 student movement makes an image like that sort of ready to hand for global dissemination which is not at all to discount how amazing she was at the time as a leader of the student movement but I'm also sort of saying that it's not like we can't also acknowledged that compulsory able-bodiedness made her more easily representative than the more mar- much more marginalized images of the hunger strikers, even though I think they're very striking images of the hunger strikers, Chilean students who for a long period of time went without food to protest the imposition of fees on higher education and wanted education to be free and accessible for all. So, Compulsory able certainly contributes to that process, and I think working in tandem with forms of kind of neoliberal identification so that image, many Paralympic images become photo ops for politicians that score certain identity points while covering over their policies. I think that is as true in the... London 2012 games where actual disabled people were outside the stadium protesting the fact that the government was cutting policies and imposing even harsher means tests to guarantee that you would get benefits. So you had to be proven that you were not fit to work if you were going to, that's the phrase that's used, if you were not going to receive your benefits. So I think the Olympics happened at this moment where incredible punishing policies were being put in place and photo ops helped to cover over the cruelty of that I think it was less talking about the Paralympics and more about the World Cup I think that was really on in evidence in Brazil too where the the World Cup gets kicked off literally by a disabled person using this sort of fancy technico- Exoskeleton that allowed him to kick a ball, uh, and then the game start. And meanwhile, like the uh, there was the hashtag that described this movement. I, I don't speak Portuguese so I will botch this, but it's something like o, o gigante a bordo or something like that, the giant has awo- awoken, that was talking about the fact that Brazilians were in the streets saying we want, we want hospitals, we want schools, we don't want stadiums in the middle of the Amazon that are going to suddenly you know, be completely vacant after this global spectacle for capital. And so it's interesting the ways in which you know, in both those mega sporting events, um, disability ended up kind of covering over other kinds of protests that were happening.
1: You also talk about in your book how the push for disability rights is starting to register in some places more than others. And while obviously a very complicated answer, I'm wondering what in your research has revealed about what are the certain pressure points that allow these acts of resistance to kind of register on a broader scale?
3: That is a difficult question, and I, it, it speaks to my optimism of the will as a theorist and... I don't always know that I'm right, right? I I think I am often in locations where I'm talking with colleagues and activists and artists about disability all the time, and it then affectively feels to me like something is happening, right? And so it's easy to sort of say that demands for disability justice are, are starting to have effect. I think that there's something also performative about that statement, like willing it into being by by saying it. But um, I do also think that the sheer quantity of cultural production that is happening with radical crip art and activism, that sheer quantity is suggesting that something is really going on that is in excess of the nation state, in excess of one location, And the very idea that the phrase disability justice can circulate at all is an indication of something shifting. So it's a term that has its origins in uh, sort of crip of color uh, critique um, with Mia Mingus being one theorist who's really credited with forwarding that idea of disability justice, but also the performing group Sins Invalid. They are organizations and individuals who want to think outside the limitations of a disability rights model to something more expansive. So the fact that that's circulating, I think, speaks to something that's happening at least in thought, if not always in terms of concrete things that we can yet measure.
2: Well, Professor McCrew, thank you so much for sitting down with CONTRA and answering these questions. We so look forward to your talk here today at Vanderbilt and are very excited for your new book.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to CONTRA, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. CONTRA is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hamrai, Cassandra Hartplay, Maggie Meng, Jera Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L, and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.